Good morning. So fall allergies have hit me in full effect, so you're going to hear some earthier tones this morning as we walk through the text today. We are in the book of Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 through 35. It's on page 43 in the Blue Bibles. If you want to grab one of those, you can follow along. The text will also be uh, on the screen. The past few weeks, we have looked at the glory of God that Moses... Uh, made this bold request to behold the glory of God. Show me your glory. And we saw that uh, glory and God's goodness are, are, are the same terms. That in asking to see the glory of God, his wonderful goodness would be uh, displayed. And we looked at that as God's uh, fierce love and his fierce justice held together that displays the character and the goodness of our God. And then last week, we looked at that the, um, really the centralized aspect of God's glory, some of the most powerful aspects of who he is and his goodness is displayed in his revealed face. And that what Moses was asking was actually too wonderful for him to behold. That as a sinner, beholding God in his, in his, in his face would, would lead to certain death that sinners cannot gaze upon the glory of God because of our broken sinful natures and our broken sinful bodies. And we looked at that bold request with the hope that one day we will behold the face of God. That the end of the story for Christians is beholding the face of God in eternity, forever and ever, amen. That we will get to gaze upon the perfection of beauty and who he is forever. And that's where we are going. But there's also another aspect of God's glory that we get to look at today. That as we finish out chapter 34, we're going to look at that and what that means for us as Christians, as we still get to meditate on the glory of God. So let me pray, and then we'll walk through this together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word, that with glad and generous hearts we would receive it, that it might shape us to be a people that are so in love with you and so in love with your glory that we would seek you. And that comes through the initial step of faith, that comes through daily enjoying you, that comes through repentance, that comes through worshiping you like we just got to do. And I pray that you'd give us a wonderful vision for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Exodus 32 through 34, we've been in this for a couple of months now. And what's happening in these chapters is the people who were had received the covenant of Moses. They had received the Ten Commandments. And then they immediately rebel against God. They reject him and worship a golden calf instead. Moses, coming down the mountain, sees this. And then he goes and he pleads with God, do not destroy this people. And then, and then we get to see in the coming uh, chapters, there's this lingering, is the covenant going to be restored? Is God going to restore his covenant with his people? And then the past couple of weeks we've seen, yes, this covenant will be restored. And the rest of this chapter in 34 is kind of repeated language, bringing up different uh, passages that we saw in Exodus 23, different aspects of this covenant as it's being renewed. So a lot about what to walk through is going to sound very familiar. You've been walking with us through Exodus. So we're going to start off in verse 10. It says, and he said, behold, this is God speaking. 
Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And I just, I so appreciate that verse before we walk through some of this repeated aspects of the covenant being renewed, that they rejected God. They rejected him for a golden calf. And God not only is granting forgiveness and restoration, he says, I'm going to do marvels with you. Such have not been seen, which is incredible if you've been with us through Exodus because you've seen God's marvels poured out on the Egyptians. You saw them cross the Red Sea. We've seen uh, God provide daily manna for the people. These are wonderful marvels. And God's saying, I've got more that I'm going to do with you, that I'm going to do awesome things with you, which is an incredible statement. If you work for a big, giant, wonderful company, I mean, lots of employees, a wonderful CEO, and all of a sudden, you went to the break room for lunch, and like a, like a, like a thoughtless child, you took your tinfoil burrito and threw it in the microwave, hit five minutes, and then walked away. And then came back, and the microwave's on fire, and the room's on fire, and the whole business burns to the ground. And it's all caught on footage, backed up to the cloud. And your boss invites you to your house and his house and shows the footage of you thoughtlessly throwing the burrito in, hitting and walking away. And you're waiting for the pink slip. You're waiting like, this is it, I'm done. And he looks at you and he says, you messed up. But I'm still going to do awesome things with you. You're going you're gonna to stay on board here. We're going to rebuild this thing, and I'm going to do awesome things with you. You'd go, what? I burnt your business to the ground. What? And now I get to do awesome things with you? Our God is wonderful, y'all. This is what he does. He works with sinners who rebel all the time, and he looks at us, and he says, I'm going to do marvelous things with you. It's wonderful. And then he continues in verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice their gods and you are invited you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods this is repeated language from exodus 23 god uh, when we walk through that section we got to see how god uh, has uh, judgment coming to the people of the land, the, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, this people who have committed all types of atrocities and abominations. They've done things like sacrifice their own children to foreign gods. They've done all these things, and judgment will fall upon them. And he's saying, do not make covenants with them, lest you fall into the same trap of worshiping their foreign gods. Don't intermarry. Don't know this judgment will be upon this people. Don't do it. We saw that in Exodus 23. And God is bringing that language back to remind them, don't do this lest you chase other gods, which, by the way, just happened. And we see this more directly in Exodus, 
in uh, verse 17. It says, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Now, some repeat language from the second commandment in Exodus 20, but there's, there's a phrase in there that wasn't there before that is very much a reminder of what just happened. The word, the phrase cast metal, that comes right out of Exodus 32, the same language when Aaron is making a cast metal calf of gold. And that's kind of thrown in there to help them see, don't, don't break the second commandment in this way that you just did. Be like showing up to the new business, show up to the new break room, and all of a sudden above the microwave is do not microwave burritos in this microwave. And everyone knows it's you, Jason. That, that notice is for you, bro. That's a reminder. You've, you worshipped this cast metal object. Don't worship foreign gods, especially the one which you just did continues this renewing covenant language in verse 18. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the, firstborn of your, all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. So again, this is language we've already seen. We've seen it in Exodus uh, 13 when they institute the Passover and, and, and the redemption rites for the firstborn. It's a reminder that I, your God, your Redeemer, redeemed you out of Egypt. By striking down the firstborn of Egypt, I redeemed you from slavery. And you will remember this through Passover, through redeeming the firstborn over and over again. This is language being brought back into the covenant again. And it keeps going with language on resting and feasting. In verse 21, it says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvests, and the feast of end gathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. And it's this language of you're going to rest. That you were slaves in Egypt. You were a cog in the machine where you worked seven days a week and did not rest. And I redeemed you and I'm bringing you back into this rhythm of working six days and resting on the seventh that goes back to creation. You're not a slave to a foreign pharaoh. You belong to me and you will rest and you will feast. You'll remember, we walked through this in Exodus 23, the keeping of the feast that helped the people regularly celebrate that they are the people of God. And they get to do that through a, their whole feast calendar, which if you, if, this is, if you weren't with us for Exodus, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of these sermons where we walk through these different aspects of the covenant that's being renewed again. In verse 25, it continues, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits on your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Which we saw this language in Exodus 23, but 
its instructions on in this covenant. You're going to keep the sacrifices in the way that I tell you to do, and you're not going to mix them in a way with some of the pagan ways of offering sacrifice, some of the pagan practices like boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. You won't do what the people of the land do. You are going to do what I am telling you to do as my people separate from the nations. So, this covenant's being renewed with some summarized language from before, and it's getting wrapped up here in verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. He's like, write, write these down. Bring them back to the people. And, and he's, he's, he's summarizing it, bringing it to a, uh, to a, to a conclusion here. You, you are my covenant people. I'm, I'm still going to walk with you. I'm still going to be with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. Moses has to be joyful at this point, knowing, yes, we're back in favor with God. And in verse 28, it says, So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So he spends the next 40 days and 40 nights with God, God supernaturally sustains him with complete dependence upon him during this period of time through an absolute fast from both bread and water. And he spends those 40 days and 40 nights with God, ready to bring down the good news of this renewed covenant to the Israelites. And then when he comes down the mountain, there's something different about Moses and that is because you cannot experience the power of our God like Moses did and leave unchanged. You don't experience the power of God like this and leave unscathed in the best way possible. He journeys down the mountain. We pick it back up in 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. So Moses, tablets in hand, joyfully excited to tell the people, you're not going to be abandoned. God is with us, starts coming down the mountain. And then all of a sudden, the people who are at the base see this light in the distance approaching. And this isn't like a flashlight in the darkness. There's something different about this light. And, and this light has power in it. And all of a sudden, it's getting closer, and it's getting closer. And people are starting to, to, to cringe a little bit. They're starting to shield themselves. It's too much. They're starting to be afraid. And then at some point, they piece together, this is Moses. And there's something about him. His face is shining. Now, at some point, as the people are stirring and afraid, witnessing Moses' face shining, at some point, someone has to tell them, Moses, your face is shining. Like, get him a mirror, get him a pail of water, let, let him see this. But your face is glowing. There's 
uh, one theologian some, or one commentator, I think, nailed it. He said, Moses' glow is actually an afterglow from being in God's presence. This is afterglow. Somewhere between Moses' profoundly wonderful experience with God when he asked to see his glory, somewhere between him, God covering him in the cleft of the rock and passing by and the the next 40 days and 40 nights that he spent with God, somewhere in that time, Moses' very complexion changes. His face begins to glow with the glory of God. There's afterglow shimmering from his face, displaying, emanating the glory of God. And that is because Moses has experienced his glory and his power in a way that no one really has since Adam and Eve. And you don't get to experience God like that and leave unchanged. He has this intense experience. And now Moses, who's the the mediator, he's the one in the middle between the people and God, needs an intermediator for himself because the people can't stand in his presence and they're scared, so he needs something that's going to kind of shield a little bit this glory. Verse 32, afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So now Moses, in order to be with the people and them not be fearful, he has to put a veil over his face. I mean, this is very similar to the tabernacle. And we spent some time looking at the tabernacle, that in the innermost part of the tabernacle was a place called the Holy of Holies. This room is where God ruled and reigned from. And there was a, a curtain, a veil, that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. And this veil was needed because God and his glory is too wonderful for sinners to behold him. So this veil separates God from the people. And in the same way, there's an afterglow of glory bound up in the face of Moses. And there's a veil that is needed so that the people can be in his presence. So that Moses can... Be amongst his people, which I just for a moment, this is the main part, part of the story, but I just, I appreciate if you've been with us long enough in Exodus, just Moses as a person to study, as a character study, which I think is helpful to do sometimes. We want to be like Christ, okay? It doesn't mean that, you know, you study David so you can slay giants. I'm not arguing for that. But what I am saying is that sometimes it's helpful to look at different people in the scriptures and notice things about them. One of the things I love about Moses is that he is meek. He is meek. He is mild. And God uses the meek and the mild to do wonderful things. The meek shall inherit the earth for a reason. So sometimes we just get it twisted. We get it in our ideas that strength is this idea that is not biblical. But actually meekness is strength. And God uses his meekness to the point now where he has to, he's so powerful, he has to keep his face bound up. Again, it's not the main point of the story, but it's worth examining its own. So, verse 34, it says, Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, 
And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. And this is the pattern of ministry going forward after Sinai. In fact, this marks really the pivot in, in the wilderness narrative where they're leaving Sinai and the ministry is going to be this point for going forward in the wilderness with Moses and his people. And Moses is going to regularly enter into the tent of meeting. He's going to meet with God and then he's going to come out and teach them more about his law, which is where we're going to get the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He's going to teach them more about who their God is and his face is going to continue to glow. And this is what he's going to continue to do. And I just, one commentator, he, he talks about Moses, and I'll summarize what he said. But basically, he just said, this is really, Exodus 32 to 34, this really does establish Moses as, he's the goat of prophets. He is the greatest. I mean, he just, he's just amongst all the prophets in the Old Testament. He, he stands apart. I mean, even the last few chapters, when the people rebel and, Moses comes down and he stands between them and God and he pleads with God, mediates for the people. And then when God says, all right, you can go to the promised land, but I'm not going. And he says, God, I'm going to go where you go. I don't want the promised land without your presence, God. If you're in the wilderness, that's where we'll be. From that all the way into asking to see the glory of God. And we got to spend some time looking at that to coming down the mountain. And now the rest of his ministry, he's going to have this, these, these intensely wonderful experiences with God where he leaves with some glory on his face. Just shows who Moses is as a prophet. The reason why he was so revered and so rightfully respected for centuries to follow in Judaism. So, I mean, that and just what he brings to them, which is something that is the foundation for their belief, it's the law. It really does help us see the ministry of Moses going forward, how wonderful it is. Now, that's the end of chapter 34. We, this, this, this hint of what's, what's going forward is that he's going to regularly go into the tent of meeting. He's going to meet with God. He's going to come out. He's going to have glow on his face. He's going to teach the people the law. Now, when we try to understand the Old Testament, okay, when we're studying the Old Testament, we're studying these stories, one of the difficult parts of interpretation is to not understand these stories isolated by themselves, but to actually understand these stories in light of the bigger message of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. That what we're trying to do is understand these stories in light of Christ. And that takes work. It takes slowly reading passages like this and trying to understand, like, what's happening here? How does this correct to this bigger story of God's redemption? And then, every now and then, we get a wonderful gift from the New Testament. Because every now and then, the New Testament does the work for us. And that's what we have for this story right here. That 2 Corinthians 3 is that chapter that helps us look back at this story and understand it in light of Christ. For the rest of our time, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 on your blue, in your blue Bibles. That's page 561 if you want to follow along. But we're gonna be, the text will be on the screen as well. 2 Corinthians 3 is really interpreting... Exodus 32 through 34, in light of the new covenant of Christ. 
It's looking back at the events that we've been in the last few weeks that really find their ending in the story that we went into today. It's understanding that in light of Christ. Now, let me give you some context for 2 Corinthians because we're jumping into a book. 2 Corinthians is a defense written by Paul, who's an apostle. It's a defense of his ministry, of the gospel, and his apostleship to the church at Corinth, who at the time was wayward in sin, but also being led astray by people who were coming in and teaching a different message. So Paul's having to defend his apostleship and defend the ministry of the gospel that he established when he planted this church. So, but he's going to use Exodus 32 through 34 to make that bigger point. Pick it up in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Which, by the way, that's rhetorical. And I think it's sarcasm. (laughs) He's like, do we need a letter of recommendation? The answer is no. You, verse 2, yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul says that I don't need a letter of recommendation to be able to justify the ministry that we established here. The letter of recommendation is your changed hearts. It's the Holy Spirit changing your heart. And that didn't come through reading the law. So he says tablets of stone. That's what he's talking about. That didn't come through your interactions with the law, which we catch a hint of what teaching has been weaving its way into the Corinthian church. It's the same teaching that's weaved its way into many churches at that time. And that was uh, Jewish Christians who were upholding the law, saying you can have Jesus, but you also need to obey the law. So we see hints of that teaching that it's weaved its way into here. And Paul is establishing, no, it is the Holy Spirit that changes hearts. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So he highlights, here's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant of the letter, it kills. It highlights the death that we Deserve because we cannot uphold the law because of our sin. The letter kills. The Spirit, on the other hand, gives life. As one commentator puts it, he says, the Spirit alone gives life because only the Spirit can change the heart, thereby enabling God's people to keep his commands. So he says, the law isn't what changes your heart. It's the Spirit of God that changes your heart. You know how we know this? Exodus 32, the people receive the Ten Commandments and then 10 seconds later say, you know what? Golden calf, disregarding the second commandment. Let's worship this instead. 
if the letter was sufficient at changing the human heart, the Old Testament would read radically different. (laughs) Because I don't know if you've read the rest of the Old Testament, it goes poorly for the people over and over and over again. It feels like watching a train wreck in slow motion on repeat. The letter does not change. The letter does not change. It only brings death. It only highlights the death that we have because we cannot be changed through our good works and obedience of the law, the change that happens that truly matters in the human heart. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. He continues, Now, if the ministry of death, (laughs) which I just appreciate, it's just like, we're talking about the law, right? Then the law is wonderful and good. And he's like, New covenant. Now the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which when we read the Bible, we should go, wait a second, I know that story, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. I don't want us to miss what he just said there. The old ministry, the old covenant was a ministry ultimately of death, highlighting the condemnation that we deserved. And if that came with this glorious picture that we just saw of Moses coming down the mountain, face glowing, if it comes with some afterglow, how much better is the ministry of the new covenant that we have? It's so much better. Because we have the Holy Spirit. Verse 10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So he finishes off this this first part is really interpreting that story, Exodus 30-34. And he says, boy, oh boy. If that which came to an end had glory in itself, how much more glorious is faith in Christ and the Spirit changing our hearts in a way that never ends? That's so much sweeter. That's so much better. So he makes a pivot there in interpreting Exodus 32 through 34, and now he's about to apply it to the people. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For this day when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day. Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. He says, those who put their hope in the law, those who put their hope in their own good works and their own good behavior through obedience to the law, he's talking about the Jewish people. He says, that veil still covers their hearts. They can't see and behold God. They don't know him. They're looking for life, but they're actually only receiving death because obedience to the law doesn't save, and it never will. 
and they're missing out on the glory of God. There's a wonderful picture we've looked at for weeks now. They're missing out on his glory. Their hearts are hardened. Their eyes are darkened. They cannot see and behold God for who he is. The veil still remains. The only way that veil is removed so that, so that you can behold God is by trusting in the finished work of Christ. It's by trusting that he fulfilled the law on our behalf. It's by trusting that he went to the cross to die for our sins. It's by trusting that he conquered death of the resurrection. It's by putting all of our hope in Christ and not the law. Because if your hope is in the law, and if your hope is in good works, the veil remains. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He says that when we turn from our sin and from our hope in the law, from our hope in good works and obedience, and we turn to Christ, the veil is removed. And when that happens, there is freedom. There is wonderful freedom, freedom from condemnation to sin, Freedom from a need to be good, to be good, to obey the law, to do all the right things. Freedom from this ministry of death and freedom to Christ. Freedom to beholding God. Freedom to not having to go back to the old yoke of obeying the law, but trusting in the finished work of Christ as our only hope. There is freedom that is found in faith in Jesus alone. There's freedom to enjoy him and to worship him and to Behold him. With this freedom, we get to behold him. And as we behold him, we are changed. And this is where the argument ends. Verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Just as beholding God changed Moses. It literally changed his complexion. So beholding our God through faith transforms us. And it lifts the veil off the heart so that we can actually behold him. So that we can experience more of his glory but it's continual. It's one degree of glory to the next. One degree of glory into another degree of glory, which I don't fully know. I can't fully picture what he's getting at there, but it sounds incredibly awesome. This idea that will conform more to the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next. Last week, we sat in this picture of the end state of reality for Christians that's beholding God's face with new eyes. And that's it. That's where we're going. And I don't want us to miss that. But it should be so like ingrained in the fabric of our being that we would look at this life and say, I don't want what this life has to offer because what, 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 what awaits me for eternity is, is infinitely better. But don't miss that that's not the only picture of glory that we get. Because there is a regular, daily aspect of beholding God from one degree of glory to the next, and to the next, and to the next, and to the next. And that's called sanctification. 
That's called becoming more like Christ. Don't miss that, right? That we get to behold God regularly and daily. And when we do that, it changes us from one degree to the next and to the next and to the next. Some of y'all have known Christians who have walked with God for decades. I mean, you've gotten, you've gotten to see someone up close change the Spirit work in their heart daily and daily through the decades. And it's wonderful when you get to see that. And if you haven't, if you haven't gotten to see this long-term play out, I encourage you to spend some time with some of our older saints in this church. Get to know them and their stories. And I'm sure what they're going to tell you is, is that, yeah, they're not perfect at all. Far from it. But they are different than what they were 50 years ago. They are different than they were 40 years ago. And that was through daily beholding God from one degree to the next, to the next, to the next. In a way that they're not as anxious as they used to be. They're not as angry as they used to be. That There's this peace. There's this love. There's this joy. There's this faithfulness. There's this gentleness. There's this kindness. There's this self-control that they've grown into because the fruit of the Spirit has been shaped in them. Because from one degree of glory to the next, they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And they've found their refuge in Him. And they've seen that He's actually truly better. Sometimes trying to take in faith just feels like, I just don't know what I got. Like, I mean, I'm just so broken. I'm so messed up. I don't know if I'm going to get this. That's a great place to be in because that's the, that's, the, that's the beginning, the genesis of faith is recognizing that I'm broken and I need Jesus. But boy, oh boy, faith is a lifelong journey from one degree to the next. And the invitation is there. You want the glory of God? Do you, do you want the glory of God? Do you want to behold his face forever? One degree at a time. To the next, and to the next, and to the next. This comes through the things that we talk about all the time, and we won't stop talking about them because they're wonderful. That comes through beholding God and his word. This comes through growing in prayer. This comes through repentance. This comes through being open and honest at your community groups on care nights. This comes through walking in the light with brothers and sisters. This comes through uh, uh, faithfully following Jesus every day from one degree of glory to the next. So the invitation is there. It's waiting for you. You want Jesus? Believe in him. You want more of him? Taste and see every day. And you're going to experience them from one degree of glory to the next, and to the next, and to the next, and to the next, and to the next. And boy, oh boy, we won't even come close to the finished product. Not a chance. But every degree of glory ends up being better. Every degree of glory is the Spirit changing us until one day we will actually behold Him. And there will be no degrees left. It'll just be Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us behold you and worship right now. And when we leave here, we pray that we'd be a people with veils off our hearts, beholding you every day because you are beautiful and you are wonderful and you're better than anything this world has to offer. And I pray that you would help us believe that with everything in us, we would bank our hope on that reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Band's going to come up.
So, so much of the message sometimes gets mixed up, especially in Southern Christianity, that following Jesus is about cleaning your life up, and it's about getting your life together, getting your, your stuff together, so that you can be back in church, so that you can, so that you can be around other Christians. And I just want to say, that's Moses, y'all. If you came looking for Moses and trying to clean your life up, that's, that's a ministry of death. Don't do it. Some of y'all, I, I just want to extend the invitation of faith to actually behold God for who he is. And that doesn't come through cleaning your life up. That doesn't come through a bunch of good works. That comes through surrendering to our God. So believe and surrender to him and behold him for who he is. And then walk the journey with us as a group of broken Christians that are seeking to grow to be like Jesus one degree at a time.